All right, folks, Pete Trubis with all the events coming up. Let's talk seminars all in Wichita Falls. Next one up, August 13th through the 15th, then October 15th through the 17th, and then we've just added December to the list, December 10th through the 12th. For camps coming up, we do have a coaching development camp in Orlando. That'll be how to coach the deadlift and the squat. That's on June 27th. Then we have some self-sufficient lifter camps on the list, both of those in Wichita Falls covering the squat, the press, and the deadlift, how to film yourself, and how to diagnose your own technique. We have one on July 10th with a few spots left, and then September 11th just added to the list. We do have a few spots left for our squat camp in Houston at Starring Strength Houston on June 19th. And then we've also added a squat and deadlift camp to the list in Oklahoma City at Starting Strength Oklahoma City on July 17th. And then finally, a few spots left for our first ever Olympic lifting camp. That'll be on September 18th in Denver at Starting Strength Denver and covering the snatch as well as the clean and jerk. We do still have some spots left for our classic Olympic lifting meet in Wichita Falls on July 24th where we've added the clean and press. And then 5x3 Training in Baltimore is having their 10th annual Charm City Strong Woman Contest. That's a charity event, and that'll be on September 12th in Baltimore. Starting Strength Gyms continue to look for coaches. So if you're interested in finding out what that process is like, head over to startingstrengthgyms.com and check out the coaching tab. Also, I don't have anything good for Ray Gillenwater this week. I apologize. I'll come up with something better next week. And as usual, for more details on anything that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. This is our regular Friday podcast. Friday. I'm supposed to pronounce it Friday. Here in Texas, I just call it Friday. But, you know, this is apparently too hard on people from California. So uh, we are here today with uh, Dr. Malcolm Kendrick. And uh, I uh, ran across a, a piece that... Dr. Kendrick had written uh, a couple of weeks ago about COVID-19, and I enjoyed his uh, perspective on it. And uh, we contacted him, and he graciously agreed to make some time for us to be on the podcast. And I thought we could have a very interesting, rather wide-ranging discovery um, about the medical profession in general and what has happened over the past year and a half that further erodes my confidence in many of these people. And uh, Dr. Kendrick shares my skepticism, so uh, we'll have some interesting things to talk about. Malcolm, thank you for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background before we get diving into these specific topics today? Well, uh, uh, I'm a Scottish, right? <laughs> I trained as a doctor in Scotland and uh, worked as a general practitioner there for a few years, but I've moved down to England. So I now am a general practitioner or family practitioner in, uh, in uh, near to Manchester in, in England. Um, I've written, a, I write a blog, I've written a few books um, mainly about uh, heart disease, which is my particular interest, but um, I have a different ideas about heart disease and what causes it. I'm not a great fan of the diet heart hypothesis or the mm -hmm. cholesterol hypothesis, which put me um, put me somewhat at odds with the rest of the profession. So I think I've kind of found myself uh, looking at the world with a slightly different view since all of this, because once you're on the, uh, on the outside, if that's the correct term, you, you have a different perspective on the world, which um, uh, they sometimes say a one-eyed man is uh, is king in the land of the blind. And I, I often say, well, actually, he probably just poke, pokes his eye out because no one else will listen to him. Well, uh, I, you know, sympathize. <laughs> we, we're kind of in the same position with what we do here, the exercise science community 
doesn't like what we have to say, but that doesn't make it wrong. <laughs> so uh, we're kind of in, a, in the same kind of a, a situation as you. And I, uh, like you, have been interested in the uh, cholesterol theory of heart disease for many years. And we'll get to that after a while. I want to, I want to discuss that too because I, you're up on what the thinking is now, and and uh, I'd like to like to get caught up about that. But the the piece I saw uh, last week was with respect to COVID nineteen, and uh, I'd I'd like to get your thoughts on the disease itself, on the vaccine. Uh, "Quote unquote," that has been uh, uh, developed in several iterations for this for this disease, ostensibly, and uh, the medical community's reaction to this situation, and all of the insanity with respect to government action that has that has descended from the medical community because they're. They did this to us. So okay, it's my fault. <laughs> it's your fault. Well, it's my fault. Uh, I'm an, I admit it. I organized it all. <laughs> I have the entire well, you're, you're medical profession at my command. <laughs> you didn't realize, did you? <laughs> I'm like Doctor No in a James Bond film. But uh, I think that uh, the the thing that happens with the medical profession is it's a very conservative. Uh, profession and and you have the opinion leaders the key opinion leaders who sit if you like at the top of the pile they're the ones that get together and create the guidelines they're the ones that advise the government they're the ones that work closely with the pharmaceutical industry they are the uh, the, the sort of inner sanctum if they once they start to proclaim on an issue the rest of the profession pretty much just lines up and goes that's what we will do. That's what we will say. Right. Everybody, and, uh, and everybody I think, just I think wants that, to agree with each other. Um, well, I think there is a, a tyranny of agreement. Um, yes. uh, it really does become stepping out of the, the, the accepted view becomes very much frowned upon. I mean, I'm acutely aware of this. I've been battled from one side and the other over the years by various people who, who just take great comfort in being part of the of the pack if you like and uh they don't but need to think for themselves yeah. you know i noticed that behavior in doctors many many years ago uh if you compare doctors with lawyers uh doctors will never say anything bad about another doctor they'll say you know even when they completely disagree with the guy's opinion they'll say things like well you know people people's opinions on these matters differ and lawyers will say that rotten fuck you know that guy is a stupid ass you know they they, they don't mind poor mouthing each other but doctors just won't do that doctors won't come out and say no the guy is wrong and it's like you say it's the it, it, there's a kind of a um a doctor's club that everybody that's a doctor wants to be in, even at the expense of uh, intellectual integrity at times. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do see that. I can't, I, and I'm not going to sit here and defend uh, defend the horrible attacks on but the medical profession. I mean, a good thing about the profession is, in a way, this this is how society works, if you like, that, that we have leaders and people follow leaders, and, and that's kind of makes society function in a way right makes doctoring function stepping outside of the uh the network means that you're you know you're not you're saying you shouldn't do this i mean i've read back on the history of things like the total the radical mastectomy for, for breast cancer and, and and you know in the 1920s and 30s surgeons who objected to this were were thrown out of the profession never worked again so it's uh it, it's one of these problems that it's a requirement to make things work, but if it goes too far, it becomes a kind of brutal tribal thing if you're not careful. And, and I think, it, it, especially with COVID, it's become a very brutal 
sort of club which if you dissent you are really cast into that outer darkness uh, and that's um does make any criticism extraordinarily difficult you know well we've seen that in action here with the frontline doctors coalition that has uh, that has come out in support of the use of ivermectin and uh I, I just can't believe how these people have been treated. It's just bizarre to me that, uh, I mean, we have the empirical data about this. We have uh, many conclusive studies showing the efficacy of, of ivermectin, and uh, these people have just been called everything except a turkey sandwich, you know, for, for just daring to suggest that possibly remdesivir might not be a, you know, an inexpensive way to deal with and and, and treat COVID-19. Uh, remdesivir is hideously expensive. These vaccines are hideously expensive. And, you know, a cynical person would look at all of this stuff that's accumulated over the past year and a half and would perhaps draw the conclusion that maybe this is about the money. Oh, I, I, I hate to think that we've got a situation where people's lives matter far less than the money. But, you know, it kind of looks like that. And uh, Well, I think... Uh you, I've, I've often referred to, what I often refer to, I've referred to the, the pharmaceutical industry as, as basically, a lot of the people that work there, they're really nice people and they, et cetera, et cetera. But as an organization, they end up acting like psychopaths. They <laughs> money, do, don't it's they? money, it's money. That's they a very just, good. And humanity. Yeah, just a total lack of empathy. Yeah, or, or right. concern about anything. I mean, very early yeah. on, if you remember that. There was a company called Surgisphere, who no one had ever heard of, who managed to get an article published in the Lancet saying that hydroxychloroquine was completely useless. <laughs> and everyone, everyone said, well, how on earth did you get this data? You know, the, the data from Australia, which they claimed, I can't remember the exact figures, but there was something like three times as many people in their study as had even existed that had COVID. And, and eventually <laughs> a number of people said, well, this was just made up. You just made this up, didn't you? You just and, invented uh, this data. You pulled this data out of your ass, and Lancet yeah. published it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's just. It's I, just I, 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 and to what end? To what end? To prevent yeah. the use of a readily available, inexpensive, effective treatment. And ivermectin has been treated exactly the same way. Ivermectin yeah. is an amazing substance. It's got profound antiviral properties that. No one had even investigated before, although ever, a lot of people knew it. A lot of people knew it. A lot of practitioners uh, had observed through their use of ivermectin in uh, tropical disease that it did other things besides kill parasites. Yes. But, but it, was, uh, uh, it was not, uh, it hadn't been investigated for that, and as a result, and, and the, here's the biggest problem with ivermectin is it costs 25 cents. That's the problem yeah. with it. I can go down to the yeah. farm store and get a tube of ivermectin horse wormer for $12, with which I can treat 15 people. And yeah. that's the real problem. That's the real problem. And well, I'll tell you it, that it works. When the pandemic... Well, whatever term you want to use for first came along, I was looking at uh, advising people to take hydroxychloroquine and uh, uh, vitamin C and vitamin D, which, which all have benefits. Vitamin D is powerful uh, immune um, benefits on the immune system and vitamin C. When you're infected with serious infections, your body starts burning through vitamin C. Animals, when they get infected, use up a lot of vitamin C produce and synthesize more for themselves mm. obviously we can't do that we can't produce it and and again um you know with with um with these 
conditions. What they did with uh, with hydroxychloroquine with, uh, was that they gave it to people in clinical trials when they were extremely ill, really seriously, almost dying, and then they gave excessive doses of the drug, which showed no benefit and potentially harm. But I mean, these were just ridiculous. These were these were set up to fail studies. Right. It's what it sounds yeah. like. They. How do we test this substance under these clinical circumstances in a way that will guarantee that we can continue to develop our expensive vaccines and our expensive uh, acyclovir derivatives? That yeah. I, I mean, acyclovir and famcyclovir, all these antiviral drugs are are they don't hardly do a damn thing. And everybody that's ever taken them knows they don't do a damn thing. They're hideously expensive and they're ineffective. And at the same time, hydroxychloroquine used correctly and ivermectin used correctly are inexpensive. They are approved medications. They can be used and prescribed by any doctor in the United States for anything the doctor wants to prescribe them for. I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but here a doctor can write you a prescription for any approved drug for whatever purpose he wants to wants to apply it. And that's between the doctor and the patient. And in order to do a test on ivermectin, all you would need to do would be to write a prescription for ivermectin to a person sick with COVID and then just watch what happens. Now, the fact that's not, that that doesn't result in a peer-reviewed study does not mean that it does not yield data. And this no, is, the, this is the, the hilarious yeah. part, isn't it? Is what is well, data? <laughs> well, the industry, actually, they, they, they have this saying that that uh, you know, essentially, uh, one one case does not make the plural of uh, anecdote is not data, and in fact, uh, it used to be in medicine that the plural of anecdote was data. In fact, it's data. Yeah. The plural of anecdote but, is the phenomenology. This yes. is what happens. Now, you guys can write about it or you can choose not to write about it, but it doesn't alter the fact that it happened. Well, initially when antibiotics was come along after the Second World War, there was no clinical trials, really. They just, they had this stuff, they gave it to soldiers who'd been you know, injured, and they got better. And they went, well, these people would normally have died, but now they got better. That mm. was the extent of the clinical trials on the antibiotics, there weren't people jumping up and down going, you can't use six people's observational study. That's just ridiculous. But just going back to the original point, to say anecdota, the proof of anecdota is not data, actually was the technique used by the, uh, uh, the tobacco industry um, to denigrate the people who were saying that smoking causes lung cancer. Right. Because doctors were seeing smokers getting lung cancer and going, you know what? Everybody we see that gets lung cancer was a smoker. And the far and the tobacco industry said, You can't say that. The plural of anecdote, they're not data. And in fact they changed it around. And now that has become the the cry of the medical profession, which is absolutely ridiculous. It of is. course you as a doctor you do stuff with people you see what happens to them and you learn from that that's medicine that the rest of it yeah. is, is weird statistical manipulation yes and it may or may not be useful at all what is what is much more useful to uh, a doctor is his own clinical experience so what we have done here uh, with uh, hydroxychloroquine and with uh, ivermectin over the past uh, oh, 18 months is to say that doctors who have successfully treated patients with hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin uh, in fact did not successfully treat patients with 
hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Um, to just deny the existence of what actually occurred. And once again, the, the problem with both of these drugs is they're just not expensive enough. Oh, yeah, well, when, when the original swine flu came along, and uh, I think it was Roche who, uh, who had Tamiflu, and mm -hmm. they, the, UK, the UK government, I don't know what happened in the States, but the UK government spent £1.5 billion pounds sterling, which is about $2 billion, stocking up on this stuff. Roche refused to let anyone see the results of their clinical trials. They still have. The British Medical Journal took them on and has been fighting a battle for over 10 years to get them to release the data. Because what it looks like is they didn't did do anything. Absolutely <laughs> nothing, nothing whatsoever. Absolutely nothing. nothing. Well, well antiviral medications of that type don't do anything. <laughs> they don't do anything. But they do have the uh, the advantage of being very, very expensive. And uh, that's why we still have them around, even though they don't do anything. <laughs> I know. It is. An, it's a, oh, God. You, what, you, 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 you'd end up beating your head against the wall sometimes. Oh, instead of people, I mean, this, these things don't work. They, yeah. they do what? They, they might maybe reduce the, the duration of feeling ill for about half a day maximum. They don't reduce mortality. They don't reduce serious adverse effects. They just completely add utterly. You might as well take two paracetamol a day, basically. And as you say, yeah. I don't know how much it is in America. But, I mean, but people in India were selling their, their lives to get hold of remdesivir. You hear them on the television. Right. They were pleading with people. They were paying ten times over the odds. They were they were using their entire livelihood that they'd build up over years to buy this stuff, which is Doesn't basically work. <laughs> you might as well paint yourself blue and stick a carnation up your backside. You know, right. it's 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 a terrible thing, and uh, the media. Oh God. We do an entire podcast on the fucking media. I, it's, I don't know what you, I don't know what you can say about those people. That's not very, very, well, very bad. But well, let's, that, that, let's let's do this. I want to get back into the. You had some very interesting observations about COVID nineteen, the virus itself, that I I yeah. hadn't seen explained as well anywhere. Tell us about what it does. How does it? enter the body? What does it do when it gets there? This sort of thing. Well, uh, my understanding and, uh, is the COVID, um, well, it's obviously it's a virus and it gets in either through your, your nose or your mouth. It can get into your eyes or it can get into the oral fecal route, which is obviously through your mouth, so it can be breathed in. However, it gets into your body, whatever the route of entry, uh, it then has to find a cell that's got a thing called a, a stew receptor. Uh, lots of cells have these angiotensin converting enzyme is is a is a an important hormone in the body that constricts blood vessels increases heart rate increases blood clotting factors study that it's 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 basically a cardiovascular hormone although it's present in the lungs which is actually where it's converted so this receptor is needed without the receptor the virus cannot get into the cell it uses another protein as well but basically the ACE2 receptor so using this receptor it gets into the cell. So clearly, if it gets into your bowels, if it gets into your guts because you took it, sucked your fingers and you had a few viral particles, it affects your gastrointestinal tract and that just damages the cells in the gastrointestinal tract and you can get diarrhea. So people said, oh, how can you get diarrhea from COVID? Well, it's exactly the same thing. I think it can get into your lungs and where it attaches to the ACE2 receptors, where it gets into the cells does its multiplying thing and as it comes out of the cell having gone into the nucleus and caused it to multiply it's the exit of the cell that causes the cell sometimes just to explode effectively because the cell membrane is being assaulted by viral particles virions coming out so if that happens in the lungs you get lung damage you get fluid in the lungs you get difficulty breathing the oxygen levels drop and your lungs are effectively being attacked and damaged so people can die at that stage where the oxygen levels can drop very low. 
But if the, then the virus gets into your bloodstream, and this is where actually the greatest damage seems, or the greatest harm seems to occur, because obviously your blood vessels, all the lining of your blood vessels are lined with cells, endothelial cells that have got ACE2 receptors on them because if that allows them to constrict and relax and all sorts of things. So it gets into these cells, multiplies and starts coming out, at which point the body says, right, I, I can see now that this is where the virus is coming from that I've got to get at. So it starts actually attacking the vascular system. So that's when the blood clots start to form. Mm -hmm. Because the same thing can happen in sepsis if you get bacterial sepsis. Bacteria are in your bloodstream, they literally release toxins, exotoxins. These toxins get into the blood vessels, attack them, and the, that damage to the arteries and veins causes what they call intravascular coagulation. This is where you get blood clots all over the place. So it's very much the same thing. It's just that there's an exotoxin. In the case of the virus coming out of the endothelial cell and damaging it, the body system also this stimulates the immune response. So after about a couple of weeks, once the virus has been kicking around long enough, the body creates the antibodies, and then you get this thing called a cytokine storm where everything goes on to the attack. This is right. this thing where the children get a vasculitis. So essentially, it becomes a blood clotting disease. And this is the thing that right. kills most and I, people. And I've heard I've heard it this basically described as a as a circulatory system disease, not a respiratory disease. But we're constantly being encouraged to think of this as a respiratory disease. But it, it really doesn't act that way. But the interesting thing about it is, and as scary as all of that sounds. COVID-19 still really doesn't kill anybody. It's not a, a, a deadly disease. We're not dealing with Ebola or rabies or polio. We're not dealing with, with this kind of a disease. What we, what we have seen is that people get it, they're sick for 36 hours, and then they get better. And the cytokine storm generally happens in the hospital with a ventilator inside of yes. it. And all of these horrible doomsday scenarios uh, play out in about, you know, what a hundredth of a percent of the people that have Yes. That have, I mean, the survival rate of, of COVID-19 in the United States right now is 99.991%. Now, this yeah. doesn't make me afraid of it. No. But it has been necessary to make us afraid of it. And so the, the mechanisms that you describe have been played up and played up and played over and over again in order to ramp up people's willingness to bend over backwards to do what they're told to do so that they don't die of the deadly COVID-19. And the media have done their, um, an amazing job of bringing this, this scary scenario to the fore. If you ask people, uh, I've, I've seen several surveys about this where they survey the general public. How many people do you think that come down with COVID-19 have to be hospitalized for it? And people are answering 50% because that's what they've been yeah. told. And that makes yeah. them terribly afraid to get this disease that doesn't kill anybody that is essentially not already dying anyway. Well, I think when it first arrived in uh, in Europe, uh, it was in Italy, and uh, I was looking at the statistics, and the this was the standout, amazing statistic in my view was that the average age of death was was 82, which is slightly older than the average life expectancy in <laughs> Italy, and and at that at that time from the from the start of it. I think for the first three months, yeah. I can't remember the exact statistics. <laughs> there was nobody under 40 who died. Yeah, it was just absolutely amazing that they were able to do that good a PR job with, uh, with the information 
they had about, I mean, it, it, I, I hate to say anything about the Italians, but those people are, are kind of different, aren't they, in terms of the way they run their institutions. And, uh, you know, and then you had the media ginning up all this fear and stuff and faking photography and saying that these were pictures of uh, an Italian uh, COVID war yeah. and when that was not the case and just, just lying, lying. And what we call this is propaganda. There's not any other name for it. It's called propaganda. And it must be viewed as, as propaganda, but it's been very effective. If you've got people answering the question, how many people that get COVID go into the hospital, and you've got people answering 50%, then the boys in the media have done their work very, very well. And uh, I just don't know uh, why we've all been this gullible. I think people have always found it very difficult to understand risk. I've, I've written another book called Doctoring Data, which is about how data are presented and manipulated. And uh, just in one study, just the one that's springing to mind is that, that, that um, women, um, women believe that their risk of getting breast cancer is, is approximately 20 times what it truly is. Mm-hmm. They believe that the benefits of of, of uh, mammography cancer screening is about 50 times as beneficial as it truly is. Mm-hmm. So in fact, they have the risk uh, harm idea in their head. It's it's a factor of a thousand wrong. Right. So they are terrified of, of, of getting breast cancer and they're absolutely certain that they're going to be saved by doing screening. And, and prostate cancer uh, and, for us is... is kind of the same way, isn't it? Well, I mean, I advise men not to have the prostate-specific antigen test. No, Some anybody, who knows, any, like, anybody knows anything about that. What is prostate-specific antigen? We can do a whole show on that. We need. To, I've been threatening to do that because that's a, a pet topic of mine also. it's If, if you understand that particular, because I have a, one of my mentors died of of this uh, well 10 or 12 years ago and uh, college professor of mine I miss him terribly he was a great man uh, but uh, he let them talk him into chopping his prostate out and it splattered it all over and metastasized and he was dead and it would have been just leave it alone you know but but anyway, that's a that's a that's a, a completely different topic. The the, well, the problem here, that, yeah. Malcolm. The problem here is that people are innumerate. People can barely count, and they don't understand the significance of numbers. They're not able to wrap their head around the idea that mammography doesn't really produce. 20 times the benefit that they think it does. They're not, because yeah. I, you can't ever, how, how is less information, this is what they'll say, how is less information a bad thing? Well, there's more to it than that. But you, the, the lay public doesn't understand this. And we have done a marvelous job of leveraging that uh, lack of awareness into uh, a medical empire and uh, oh absolutely just... I was talking talking about the PCR test I was trying to describe to somebody how if you had a false positive rate of say half a percent you, you could end up with far more false positives than true positives yes um, but they don't understand in that terms no, but I can't get people to understand that. No, no. I've tried, I've tried. I think, well, if you can't understand that, we can't really have a discussion. But right. essentially, uh, your figures are hard. Thinking is hard. Um, and I've, you know, I think I've recognized over the years of battering away at the cholesterol hypothesis that what people like are stories. 
we, we, we like stories and we have stories and they have goodies and they have baddies. And once you've in, once you've decided something's a baddie, an evil, scary baddie, if you can create that emotional connection, then facts are virtually useless. Yes. You just bounce off the, the, the armor. It's like, right. I know it's deadly. I know it's a pandemic. I know everyone's at risk. And I go, but would you like to look at the figures? No, but you don't, don't know me. that, really. You've been no. told that. And yes. being told that, for most people, is a perfectly good substitute for knowing something. Right? <laughs> the facts, although interesting, are irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> is, is the is the situation <laughs> well they say don't bother me the facts my mind is made up yeah right precisely that, that's so, where we, we are we are in that position we are in power fact, 100 we are in that position and and it those of us who have uh managed to keep our heads out of our asses uh have really seen an interesting thing happen over the past year uh, suddenly you are face to face with the fact that the vast majority of people are stupid and that doesn't mean they're bad people it just means that they're stupid it means they're not able to think and I'm not talking about ignorant all right everybody's ignorant to some level or another there's always things we don't know but stupid people don't mind being ignorant and you see all of these people wearing a mask driving down the street by themselves in the car wearing a mask walking down the sidewalk outside by themselves wearing a mask running on a country road with a mask on Riding a bicycle by themselves with a mask on. Yeah. It's like then you, training. You're, you're dealing with stupid people. You're, you're, these are stupid. Well, I, I, I think they're. I, I, I think they're also the scared people. People are scared. It's easy yes. to make people scared. Yeah. Scaring. I mean, if you look through the history of the world, you know, what <laughs> of most religion? What have most religions been about? Is right. scaring people shitless. Well, most, thing, but that's, I, I that's, the, that's the basis of tyranny. Yeah. Now, isn't it? Yeah. Tyranny comes <laughs> from fear. Yeah. You, people who are not afraid don't hand all of their freedoms over to an oppressive government. No. People who well, are not really afraid, yeah. you have to make them afraid yeah. first. And that's where the power derives, is from this fear. Yes. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, man, I don't, I mean, I, you, well, you, you, you talked about cholesterol. I see cholesterol. People are terrified of cholesterol. So we yes. just say, you might as well be, you might as well be frightened of a fluffy cloud, you know, for all the harm it's going to do you. But boy, you know, once you've got that in people's heads. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about cholesterol <laughs> because this is a topic that I've been terribly interested in for about 40 years. Uh, back in uh, the 60s and 70s, a researcher by the name of Ansel Keys did uh, a wonderful job <laughs> with his, uh, I think Keyes was the author of the Seven Nations Study, is that correct? That's right. It's the and Six Nations Study, then the Seven Nations Study. And then, and, and then pure bullshit all the it, way. It's just complete and total, <laughs> top to bottom, side to side, complete, absolute bullshit. Yet, it has become policy for every government on the surface of the earth. <laughs> how do you, how do you deal with this level of duplicity? And uh, since that has taken place, so give us a little bit of background on this. I haven't talked about this on the podcast before, but the, the cholesterol thing 
and heart cholesterol and heart disease. Cholesterol has been presented, dietary cholesterol has been presented as the cause of heart disease. Yeah. Nothing could be further from the truth. All, none of the studies show that. None of the studies have ever shown that. And yet, it's, the, it's currently still the assumption of the American Dietetics Association that you should yeah. limit your cholesterol intake. Why? And there's no reason for it. And it's, it's <laughs> so tell us how this all came about. Oh, um, well, historically, uh, the first person to ever see cholesterol in a plaque, atherosclerotic plaque, was actually a, a German researcher called Rudolf Virchow, who, um, who noted cholesterol crystals in plaques. He didn't actually say cholesterol caused it, he said this was a secondary phenomenon. And then moving forward about 50 years, uh, a guy, a Russian researcher called Antishkov uh, fed rabbits cholesterol, at least he said he did, and, and they developed plaques in their arteries. And then during the kind of 1920s, 30s, people, I mean, at this time there was, apparently, people say there wasn't very much heart disease, so there wasn't much interest. It was after the Second World War that in America primarily, the rate of heart, people dying from heart attacks and strokes was it got, actually strokes had come down, but heart attacks had gone up through the roof. About a million Americans were dying of heart attacks every year, and uh, the interest level obviously reached a peak. And Ansel Keys came along and said, "I know what causes it. It's because you eat too much cholesterol, and that raises your cholesterol level, and then the cholesterol gets absorbed into your arteries, and they thicken up and narrow, and that's the cause of heart disease." So that was a very simple and simplistic story. And, um, of course, his first proposal was it was cholesterol that caused it. But he himself did experiments on feeding people cholesterol and found it had absolutely no impact on heart disease, atherosclerosis, or even cholesterol levels, although there is no such thing as a cholesterol level. So he contradicted his original hypothesis in 1954. That was published work. <laughs> he then said it's not cholesterol in the diet. It's saturated fat in the diet for which he had no evidence whatsoever. But he just then went and did his famous study where he said, I went to Italy and I went to Finland and I went to America and I went to Japan and I went to these seven countries and the, the higher the level of saturated fat intake, the higher the rate of, of heart disease. He did, of course, in those seven the 21 countries, countries yeah, <laughs> where, where no such association was seen. But that was it. I mean, that, that was another case of fear. People were frightened of dying and here was a guy with an answer. So he... Right. Caught hold of the all of the, the American Heart Association was the big group. Then after that, there was in 1977 there was a, a committee with Senator McGovern who said these are our dietary guidelines, and that was set 1977 in UK 1983 based on no randomized control trial evidence. In fact, there was one randomized control study called the Minnesota Coronary Experiment done between 1968 and 1973. And uh, it showed that if you sort of replaced saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat, the cholesterol level fell by about 15% on average. But what it also showed was there was no impact on heart disease, but the rate of death, overall death, dying of anything, went up. So for every 1% reduction in cholesterol, LDL, there was a 1% percent increase in death and that study was not published for 45 years and you know who and you know who the main oh you know who the good. main investigator on that study was ansel keys it was ansel keys ansel so he suppressed his own research that contradicted his hypothesis yes. this man was and deep, buried it he was deeply flawed he was deeply well, yeah, flawed he, he had an idea he wanted to convince the world. There's some evidence, he actually went and lived in Italy. There's some evidence, although I've, not, I've never managed to get any absolute concrete evidence, that in his later life he recognized it was a crock. And, and in fact, when he tried to publish stuff saying it was a crock, he was not allowed to publish. That, however, I can provide nothing other than lots of people have told me this, but I'm not sure if I believe it, but I'd like to believe it. It's true. <laughs> well, you'd like to believe that he you know we we all like an atonement scenario you know but <laughs> exactly I, I, on his deathbed <laughs> yeah deathbed confession that kind of shit so uh 
the the man, however, in in, in redirecting everybody's attention the wrong way. Yes. Incalculable harm has been done because of well, waste, wasted yeah. time and wasted money and ineffective treatments. And yeah. uh, even now, you've got, uh, uh, there are at least three general practice physicians right here in little old Wichita Falls, Texas, to where if you go in to the office and he does he draws blood and he tests your total cholesterol at over 220. One time, you will leave the office with a Lipitor prescription. Now, yeah, that actually happens. That actually happens happens everywhere, and it is just terribly interesting that the most profitable drug on earth in the entire pharmacopoeia of the planet is Lipitor. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, there are documented well, it, problems yeah. with the with the substance. It's got horrible, nasty side effects on all other systems, but it, it does tend to lower cholesterol. But if, if you look at the data for Lipitor, there is one demographic for which it shows any benefit at all, and that is males over the age of 50 who have already had a heart attack, and that's it. Yeah. And that doesn't even speak to the mechanism by which the drug is having a beneficial effect. No. no. So, well, I mean, uh, I've spent far too much of my life studying studies on cholesterol-lowering. It's not good for right. the brain after a while. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, uh, the fact is that many other drugs and intervention have been shown to lower. It's what they call LDL, which is low density like protein, which is what they tend to call cholesterol. And uh, have had no effect at all. In fact, there's an interesting group of drugs called the Torcetrapips, uh, of which there were four, uh, which were studied and billions were spent on these drugs. And they were designed to lower high density lipoprotein, which is supposed to be good cholesterol and raise uh, sorry lower LDL cholesterol which is bad cholesterol and raise HDL which is good cholesterol and the latest of these it lowered LDL by um, by by over 40 percent it raised the uh, HDL by up to 70 over 100 percent and it increased the rate of cardiovascular disease <laughs> so here's another drug that, that lowered LDL even as it was degree. even as it was a, it was generating the approved set of lab values. Yeah, it was causing yeah. a higher mortality rate. Yes, well, as they say, the experiment was a success. Unfortunately, the patient died. But right. um, but okay. people haven't heard of these drugs because, of course, none of them launched. But the data behind them are, of course an utter contradiction of the hypothesis. Because, yes, you're the right to say, okay, Lipitor, atorvastatin, lowers LDL, and has been found to reduce the rate of heart disease to a minor amount in, in one group of men. And, and then people say, well, it must be because they lowered the LDL. You go, well, I can find other drugs that lower the LDL. Don't do this. But what I can show you is all the other off-target benefits that uh, potential benefits that Lipitor have. And one of the most important ones is that um, it increases the level of uh, a substance called nitric oxide, which you may have heard of, many people have, mm -hmm. which is yes. nitric oxide is uh, is the stuff that Viagra <laughs> produced, produced. And uh, it's the most important single um, chemical in your body that is anticoagulant. It, it causes the endothelial cells to grow and mature. And it, it it's just... A fantastically beneficial uh, uh, compound, and, and uh, Lipitor and the statins increase it. And so you can say, well, I can show you a direct other mechanism by which statins could have any benefit that they have on heart disease, mm -hmm. because I can show you other drugs that do this. There's been studies on Viagra, which increases nitric oxide synthesis, that showed that it reduces heart deaths and overall mortality in people at high risk of heart disease. By, to a to a, a level 
six times greater than anything seen with a statin. <laughs> and I can show you other drugs that raise nitric oxide that have the same benefits as statins. And yet, because this goes against the, the current mainstream thinking, people just go, no, that's, that just isn't true. I go, but, but I, I could show you a hundred papers. I could show you a thousand papers. I could crush you. Don't confuse me with yes. these numbers. I know. So it's, uh, I mean, it is, of course, vastly driven by, I mean, the total sales of statins since they came out at approximately $1 trillion. It's a trillion. Of sales. And My of God. Sales. That's, that's, that is astonishing. Now we're talking about national debt numbers. Yeah, it's uh, uh, th these people have uh, really leveraged uh, the bullshit generated by Ansel Keys, and uh, <laughs> that's exactly what I they've mean, done. Exactly yeah. what they've done. This is a this is this is fascinating. It is fascinating. It, I mean, in in both of these situations, the COVID nineteen situation and this cholesterol heart disease hypothesis, what we what we see is psychopathy, exactly like you have, like you said earlier, a complete lack of empathy for the people for whom you pretend to be concerned. Absolute total lack of any kind of human uh, appreciation of the fact that people are dying when they don't need to die. People are spending their life savings in ways that they shouldn't spend their life savings and and you you don't care because you're in it for the money and yeah. it's just you know i think we knew you know I, I i think everybody knows that a lot of people are are sorry motherfuckers you know <laughs> But I don't think that until recently we've had it rubbed in our faces as thoroughly as it has been the past year and a half. And, well, I think uh, that my um, my history of looking at heart disease and the, the techniques and the, the whole way it's been dealt with and the cholesterol fear and everything kind of sensitized <clears throat> me, perhaps more than most people, to what was happening with the COVID world, uh, and um, it was almost like the you know cholesterol was kind of like a you know training exercise for COVID. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is how you this is how you frighten people. Right. This is how you make shitloads of money out of it. This, this is, is how you silence criticism. This is how you create bullshit articles that get published, even though they're based on nothing at all. Here's how you use the power of the expert to crush dissent. And um, in fact, somebody reminded me that in Doctoring Data, which I wrote about eight years ago, that I used the famous example, you know, first, which they used in, uh, in, in Germany, first they came for the communists and I didn't object because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the socialists, I didn't object because I wasn't a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I didn't object because I wasn't a trade unionist. And then they came for me and there was no one left to object. Right. And, um, and I said, do you really believe do you really believe that 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 if you go against medical advice uh, of the experts, if you question it, that you might end up in jail, that you might end up imprisoned? I said, does that sound too dystopian for you? Because I believe that this is very close to happening. So I wrote those words eight years ago, and uh, and here we are, because and here I could are. see it happening. And here, here we are. are. Here we are. I mean, the, the great, the greatest, the greatest catastrophe of COVID has been the casual acceptance of the obliteration of human rights around the world. Absolutely. I just couldn't Absolutely. believe it would happen. I mean, every day somebody posts a new video from Australia. Now, those people have lost their fucking minds. You know. Yeah, and everybody in, everybody mm -hmm. on Sky News down there is still being allowed to say nasty things about the government for the time being. But uh, the thing that stands out in my mind uh, more than anything else is 
the government is always hungry for more power. And it never has any problem hiring people to beat you up. Have you noticed this? I mean, this is uh, this is a situation in here in, in the United States. It's it's not as bad uh, because of the of the of the nature of the the federal system we have here. New York and California are not like Texas. South Dakota is not like uh, New Jersey. You know, there there are complete completely different cultures available that, and and they're in contrast with one another and nowhere but nowhere in the United States are the cops beating you up on the sidewalk if you refuse to put on a mask yeah uh, but our friends down in Australia don't you know they they just kind of shake their heads and say yeah it's real bad yeah, it's real bad. We've lost our freedom. We're in a tyranny. We're in a tyranny right now. We, uh, we've got, uh, you know, we've got all these human rights, and uh, and they're being and they're being taken away from us. Well, you know, you never had those rights. If they could be taken away, they're not rights. Yes. And. Uh, you know, the world has seen a lot of horrible shit take place over the past 15 months. And uh, this is just beginning, Malcolm. This, is, this whole thing is just starting. Well, I hope you're wrong. I, I hope I'm wrong, too, but I don't think I am. Uh, I, I personally think, and I don't know what you think about this, but... Uh, what the origin of the COVID-19 virus is not as interesting to me as what was done with it, all right? I, the, the lab leak, just the, the past week, the lab leak hypothesis has risen up from the ashes of Anthony Fauci's reputation, and uh, people are questioning uh, this sort of thing again whereas previously it was written off as a white, it's a wild conspiracy theory. And now it's being taken seriously. So I don't, I'm not as interested in where the virus came from as what was done with it after it was here. Uh, what we have done over the past 15 months is demonstrated our willingness to sacrifice all of our freedom for safety. Now, this is a terribly interesting test, depending on who you are, isn't it? You know, if I was the Chinese Communist government and I was trying to determine whether my bioweapons uh, program was going to be successful, what have we just told them? Well, we've just, you know, we've pretty much removed all doubt we showed them what we would do. We showed them what we would do in the face of a biological scenario uh, of no severity at all. Now they come up with a real, actual, no shit biological agent that actually kills young, healthy people. It's over. It is over. We've, we've attested to our fundamental quality, haven't we? We have. I mean, uh, I, I, you know, the, the, the problem is always if you ever discuss, you know, how, how peoples are controlled, you end up looking back at, say, Germany in the 1930s and wondering how did such a civilized, advanced country end, end up like that? Could that happen here? And I've always said, well, it must be able to happen here because it happened there. Uh, but I think uh, we've seen the level of control of people, the levels of fear, how easy it would be to create, yes. you know, mobs to burn people's books and et cetera, yes. et cetera. We, we are a long way along a very, very scary past. We are. And people, 
don't seem to have become cognizant of this. You know, I mean, amongst the medics, I mean, I'm, you know, if I joined a medic, there's a group in, in, in the doctor's net, um, internet where doctors discuss things. If you, as a doctor, dare to say anything other than all hail vaccines, COVID is maybe not as serious as it's being portrayed. You just, you get absolutely attacked. I mean, I've, I'm under investigation from, from two of the major um, medical authority boards in the UK uh, at the moment, who people have objected to stuff that I've written. And, yeah. and I think I'm being pretty moderate. I mean, I'm evidence-based. I've made no statements about, you know, all, all the sort of the great changes. I've made no statements about vaccines being, you know, the bioweapons. I've made no statements about anything. I did get attacked about eight months ago for saying, if I had to bet, I'd say the virus probably escaped from the lab in Wuhan. And the fact checkers came and jumped up and down at me and said, "Don't be stupid. That's completely impossible." But uh, <laughs> you know, I, I've, uh, as it turns out, yeah, <laughs> as it turns out. Well, uh, I, 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 you know, I told you so are my four favorite words. But uh, it, it is scary. I, I'm, you know, uh, existentially worried about human society and our survival uh, at the moment because the the reaction has been very. Scary. You read, you read 1984, which you may or may not have done by George Orwell. I'm, I'm is, reading it now. It's it's a difficult yeah, read. It's prescient. It's yes, it's, 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 it's it's not uh, making me feel good. I've read it before. No. I read it, you know, 45 years ago. But I'm I'm rereading it now, and it's uh, uh, it's uh, kind of a documentary. Yeah, it's a, a it's a blueprint for it's yeah. Yeah, well, it, it was written uh, in, it was going to be called 1948 by George Orwell because he was really writing it about Soviet Russia. Mm -hmm. But uh, he was advised not not to do that for various reasons because <laughs> at that time, Soviet Russia was, was still the was still the friendly ally against the, uh, the Germans. But, I mean, it, it's almost a blueprint for how to, how to manipulate, you know, people and how they will be manipulated. And the kind of the scary things of, you know, historical document, you know, his job, mm -hmm. the job of the, the hero, Winston Smith, is to rewrite history to match yeah. the the statements of the, par the party and Big right. Brother. The so everything must be made to match. And we call that yeah. today, we call that the narrative. And yes. uh, everything must be restated to reinforce the narrative. And that's yes. how tyrannies manage information. That's how they've yes. always managed information. The first the first victim is the truth. Yes. And, uh, well, I don't know if you watched uh, uh, the, the the program Chernobyl, which is the I did. I did. Drama documentary. Fabulous, fabulous piece. Yeah. I just watched that about three or four months ago, and it was I. It, it just those of you that haven't seen that many series need to watch this because yeah. it's it is exactly what is going on right now here the yes. way it was managed the way the information was managed is what is being done right now and uh you know uh i don't know about you malcolm but i've i've always been rather cynical but i'm uh it's kind of hard to retain your girlish laughter after seeing all of this <laughs> oh, this this the carnage uh, of that which is supposed to be but is not you know uh, you you mentioned a vaccine I don't you know here we're we're getting a little long uh, people are getting bored maybe what we can do is have you back on here in a little while yeah. and we'll talk about the vaccines because the vaccines need to be I don't think all of the data is in on the vaccines I don't think we know how bad an idea that was yet but I think that within the next few months we are going to know what a bad idea that was and I think we'll save our our discussion on vaccines for uh, another time and I'd like to have yeah, you back I'm on and talk we'll go into a couple of nuclear bunkers <laughs> we, we may have to huh? 
<laughs> I haven't had the vaccine. I'm not going to get the vaccine. They can't make me take the vaccine. And uh, they're going to try to make me take the vaccine. Why yeah. they want me to have the vaccine that bad is an interesting question, isn't it? And yes. uh, I, I don't know, man. We, we are, these are dangerous times. These are dangerous times. They are, well, they are dangerous times. You know, I wrote about cholesterol, I wrote about heart disease. You know, this was conflicting with mainstream views and people had a bit of a, bit of a hoo-ha from time to time. But, but I've never felt, I'm not scared of writing what I really think in greater detail about the whole COVID situation. But I, I know that I will just be obliterated from from the media of any sort. I mean, I work, mm -hmm. I write on WordPress, but I know that, that, that if I really said some other things, that would be that, you know? Right. I mean, no, uh, they, they can't know. allow you the latitude to, to raise doubt in people's minds. Because then, if doubt comes up in people's minds, the level of obedience goes down. And that is the point. Yes. As it turns out, that's really the yes. point. Malcolm, yes. thank you it for is. being with us today. Uh, I appreciate your okay. time. And we'll, we'll get together again. Uh, okay. this, is, uh, this has been a real productive conversation, and I want to I continue this. Uh, and we'll talk next time about other things that come to mind. Uh, Malcolm Kendrick's been our guest today, and uh, we appreciate uh, we appreciate his time, but we appreciate you here at Starting Strength Radio. We'll see you next time.